Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Jerry White, and our topic is Overcoming Life Crisis. Jerry White is a global activist and leading expert on survivorship and resilience. His life's work transforming victims into survivors is fueled by the conviction that with the right tools, everyone can rise above tragedy and give back to their communities. He lost his leg to a landmine and is a recognized leader in the international campaign to ban landmines and co-recipient of the 1997 Nobel Prize for Peace. Jerry is the author of I Will Not Be Broken, Five Steps to Overcoming a Life Crisis. Welcome to the show, Jerry. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jerry. It's so great to have you on the show. Hi, Gloria. You've been one of my inspirations for a while. Uh, You've been in this field for a long time, and I've learned quite a bit about survivorship and resilience and staying in the trenches from you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, tell our audience a little bit about how you got um, into the business and your journey. Well, I was, um, you know, as life is, uh, rather surprising and shocking um, and scarring at times. I took my junior year abroad from Brown University, in fact, and wanted to study comparative religion and biblical archaeology, and I went over to study in Jerusalem. What year was this? This is in 1983 and 84. So excited to walk in the footsteps of the prophets, so to speak. Um, and no one had told me that, in fact, if you were Jesus, Muhammad, John the Baptist, uh, who met Moses today, hiking around in the Middle East, that, in fact, it's a deadly proposition. There are hundreds of thousands of buried landmines and lethal litter um, still left over from wars since World War II. So my big surprise came when I was camping with two friends um, in the northern part of Israel, outside the Banyas, a particular area, and wandered into a leftover minefield from the 1967 war, and boom, uh, I stepped on a landmine. So, you know, you hear the metaphor, life is a minefield. Well, mm-hmm. I actually experienced it uh, quite shockingly um, firsthand. Well, tell them a little bit about what happened then, because I've heard it, and it's quite remarkable, that friendship, too. Yeah, it was with two dear, dear friends who ultimately helped save my life, but when we the explosion first went off, I thought we were under a terrorist attack. I had no idea what landmines were. No one had sort of initiated me into this. And um, my two friends rolled me over and saw that my lower right leg had been blown off and I was bleeding out. And my left leg, in fact, um, was blown open with bones sticking out and I was in quite a bit of shock. So even though at first I thought it was a terrorist attack, when it became silent, it dawned on us that we were in a minefield We couldn't see where the next weapon of terror or enemy was lying hidden underground, and we didn't know how far it extended. That every move we made from the left to the right, um, heading down that hill, could be our last move, and that our fates were sort of sealed together. And these two friends were really my remarkable peers and lifesavers to have the courage to move me out and carry me um, out of that field. Ah, an amazing. uh... Experience. Well, um, then what happened? How did you get to the hospital? 
talk about, although you know in trauma, and I think every one of your listeners would attest to this, that when you go through something this horrific and shocking, whether it be a news or diagnosis or horrible news on the phone, whatever it might be, your life suddenly becomes slow motion. So I felt that I was in that minefield literally for days. Um, it turned out that you know we navigated that minefield for about an hour where, of course, they dropped me a couple times. We stumbled. We prayed. We held our breath. It was just a desperate and painful time. Um, and then we realized that we had come to the edge of the minefield and we were on the wrong side of you know, coiled barbed wire fences So uh, and a road on the other side. So you know that feeling where you're just desperate, too much pain, can't imagine that you're going to survive. But I remember something happened to me when I was probably at my lowest moment in the minefield. I subsequently had other low moments, but in this minefield thinking, oh, my God, like how can we possibly overcome and even get over this barbed wire or like, you know, stem my bleeding? Um, Something kicked in, and I think it's our natural adrenaline and um, our survivor instinct, which was, it occurred to me, I felt like it came to the front of my head, like I am not going to die this way. Mm -hmm. Like this is not how it's going to end for me. It might end later. It might be in other different ways, but something competitive seized my soul. And, you know, you've heard that definition of survivor, that it's uh, someone um, who refuses to accept defeat. And in my case, I was like, no, I'm I'm not going down this way. Like, no bloody minefield is taking me out. That's interesting because I remember at one point after Scott was killed, I think it was maybe even two weeks, I suddenly, or maybe it was even earlier, but I suddenly remember the thought, I will not get sick. I am going to survive this. Yeah. And I think that's the survivorship spirit. There's this something that's, it's both. It's not just airy-fairy of like, oh, like I want to live and thrive. That just feels so far in the distance as to be some type of sunrise and sunset that's like a painting. Yeah, when you're in that... the moment, you say, I will not be broken. You know, I will not go down. I will not be taken down by the death of whatever. I will not have a double casualty here. The website is IWillNotBeBroken.com, but also you can order through Amazon.com, of course, or or organizational site, SurvivorCore.org. So a number of ways you can get it. If you're on the Internet, you can figure it out. Very inspirational. It's also up on our website at thegriefblog.com right now as we speak. Um, When we went to break, we were talking about uh, Jerry's horrendous experience of being out with his friends, uh, break from, uh, from college, uh, out hiking, and realizing when they woke up in the morning that they were in a landmine field in Israel. And uh, they knew they were in Israel, right? Right, right. <laughs> they were on a field. But anyway, one of the things that um, is really something about landmines, Jerry, that I've heard you talk about is the fact that they are built to blow off lower limbs. They're not built to kill you, right? Right. So it's just this is man's insidious nature um, that we it was to invent a device that would maim, not kill, so that, in fact, it would terrorize whoever's with you and troops or others would come to go help you and then they'd be terrified and blown up as well and, you know, has that sort of cumulative effect. So if you talk to most soldiers of war and they talk about minefield and landmine experiences, no one likes this weapon because you end up having to go through very often your own minefields of your own creation. But it's a nasty device that's indiscriminate. Mostly civilians get killed by them around the world, so that's why we set out to ban the weapon as something like poison gas that really belongs to the dustbin of history. 
And I know a lot of our listeners will resonate with this because sometimes when I mention you to people, I'm like, well, you know the guy who went out with Diana with the landmines? Yeah. <laughs> so Lady Diana was, before she was killed, was one of the, uh, your supporters, right? Right. Now, I had the privilege of taking her um, to Bosnia, actually only a couple weeks before she died, but I worked very closely with Princess Diana in the last year of her life where her gift of compassion was really being actualized. She, in fact, was taking years of trauma and sort of emerging from the devastation of her divorce and marriage and starting to live again and and choose a future that was her very own um, and emerging with strength and applying her gifts in really remarkable ways. So I felt it was a real privilege to work with this compassionate woman and see her sort of empathy in action in Bosnia. And that and did helped, it, oh, go ahead, I was going to say it helped her heal because part of your message is we need to get outside ourselves and away from our suffering by by doing something, right? By giving back or by having a cause or... Yeah, I think for her, she it was interesting to me that she so identified with being a survivor. And I think that's very interesting that people come with all sorts of wounds, some visible, some invisible, some from dates past and ghosts, you know, and tragedies. And she was coming with a lot of things, cumulative growing up and also from her marriage that we all saw so publicly. But when she was with us in Bosnia, she said to me, um, you know, in one of these long trips in the back road of Bosnia in a minivan. She said, Jerry, every survivor, every war victim you introduce me to tells me their date. And I said, well, I'm April 12, 1984, which was the exact explosion date. And Ken Rutherford, the co-founder of the organization, said, well, I'm December 16, 1993, when he lost both his legs to a landmine explosion in Somalia. And she paused and then said, well, I have to say I'm... July 29th, 1981. And then she burst out laughing because that was, in fact, the day she married Prince Charles. (laughs) So it showed a couple things there. As a survivor identifying, as a really smart way of looking at trauma, we all know, like, the date it happened, whatever your it is, whatever your loss or tragedy is, and that these are anniversaries that somehow we have to cope with that divide our lives in two before and after. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, I was at a workshop with Bob Niemeyer, who's been on our show, and he said, if your life was a book, what would it look like? I said, mine would have two chapters. The chapter chapter one would be before my brother's death, and chapter two would be after my brother's death. Mm-hmm. So exactly what you're saying. It does divide our life. And what we do with those dates, anniversaries, like sometimes we flee from them, sometimes we deny them. They're They're painful. But in fact, as you said, Diana was trying to make something of her afterlife. Um, to use her gift and reach out and start giving to others. And she had this remarkable gift of empathy. Why? Because she had been in chronic and desperate pain, suicidal pain very often in her life, and in fact had come through and was coming through on the other side and was able to reach out to others. Now, talk about your journey. Um, you've, you've stepped on the landmine. You've, you're in the hospital. Um, what was happening for you then? Did you go through times of depression? And what about the loss? How did you feel about loss of the land? What did that mean? I remember there were two very interesting things. That, um, I had a peer visitor, someone who, I mean, in my room I had four other guys my age who had been blown up in Lebanon. You know, this is the mid-'80s, so a lot of Israelis were being hurt and maimed there. Um, and one guy came in and visited me and said, you know, I'm also a landmine survivor, and I lost my leg below the knee, and can you tell which leg I lost? And he walked perfectly by my bed, and I couldn't tell. He was wearing blue jeans. And he says, that's my point, that your battle is actually not down there, you know, pointing to, like, the legs. 
he says it's up here and in here, pointing to his head and heart. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting. I didn't know, you know, he went on to have a conversation, but I thought, oh, if this guy can do it, maybe I can too, because that was a low point. He visited a real point where I was just like, I didn't know what it meant. I had lost my leg. And there were two other stories of comfort that really helped me think of things differently. One, in fact, came from a letter of a, you know, uh, an equivalent of an aunt from back home who talked about having breast cancer and a mastectomy. And, and then though she didn't identify, she wasn't presuming that it was the same thing, she just was expressing her empathy to say, I myself have experienced losing a piece of my body and I want you to know that I care and I know how hard it is. And I had no idea about this with this particular woman. And I thought, well, I knew immediately that she got it, even though she wasn't a, quote, landmine survivor. And in addition, someone else came and talked about the loss of one of their family members and said, you know what, they knew both, you know, losing a child and then losing a limb. And they said losing a limb was the equivalent to them emotionally sort of of losing a child, that it is all about fundamental loss of an intimate part of ourselves. And again, I knew these people so understood that this, it was the only vocabulary I could grab onto of trying to understand this loss. I was so sad, understandably, not just shocked, but sad and in pain over seeing a piece of me missing. Right. And since that time, parents again and again have told me that that phantom pain of the missing limb is a decent analogy of what many people go through. That's interesting, the thought of the phantom uh the phantom limb I did, but the, the loss of a child, that integral part. Um, yeah, that's a, a very interesting. Well, yeah, I think losing part of your body must be an incredible thing because I, I don't think we realize how people who have not lost any part don't realize how attached we are to it or whatever or how that would be. I remember I had already lost a portion of myself in the minefield, so my foot's up there. And then in the hospital, there came a point with gangrene and surgeries and skin grafts that I had to cut more of my leg off, like another like 10 inches. Wow. And I raged at the thought, like, now I was going into it knowing it was about to happen, and I was given my, you know, go take your x-ray, take your wheelchair, and go, and like pretty much tough love Israeli style, like just go fend for yourself and get ready for your 6 a.m. like surgery. I remember tears going down my face, rolling up just furious at the universe, at myself, at God, at the doctors, at anyone who would take a whip, the whatever whirlwind of whipping I was doing in my mind. And I thought that, um, yeah, if you even said, you know, here's take off my pinky mm-hmm. or my index, like, you rage, you're like, no, that is so mine mm-hmm. that I don't give you permission. Like, I am incensed and furious that anyone would think that they could steal that from me, and yet now I had to sign papers and give permission for people to chop me up. In your book, you have a wonderful section, and, and the book is called I Will Not Be Broken, Five Steps to Overcoming Crisis. You can get it from Amazon. You can go to our uh, blog, the grief blog. It's up there. And you can also go to uh, Jerry White's um, website, which is I Will Not Be Broken, right? Yes, I Will Not Be Broken dot com. Dot com. And, so, and Mom, I've got to say one more thing. Yeah. When I was reading the book, I so resonated for, with all Jerry's points, and I felt so empowered. So for everyone, that's, and, and I was thinking about Scott and how I've survived. So for every, all of the listeners who have had a loss, a death of a child or a sibling, this book really will speak to you as well, it, and I would totally recommend getting it. Yeah, I would also. And let's talk about what are those five steps to overcoming crisis, Jerry? 
Jose, I don't want to sound glib about it, but I wanted to make sure that it was as practical and sort of active-oriented as possible. So um, the five steps are face facts. In other words, in my case, like my leg's not growing back. This terrible thing has happened. I can't turn back the clock. Well, and I love that you said this sucks because it does. Yeah, you face facts of your emotion too, like I hate this and all the emotions surrounding. Emotions are actually facts on the table here right now. You know, I think that's part of uh, Heidi and I are always talking about telling your story and going to compassionate friends. That's a place where you can develop your story and face it. You yeah. know, as you tell it, it becomes real for you. So it took me about two years to realize my leg really wasn't growing back, and I would say two to three years after losing it, I hit what I would say was the harder low of um, my recovery period. Mm-hmm. And that reminds yeah. me often of when my brother died, and when I talk to people that have had a death, initially you keep waiting for the person to return. And then, you know, year two and three, reality sets in, and then it gets really hard because you realize this is my new life. Right. And there's something, actually, the sad part is, for me, it was like, well, it's sort of boring being an amputee. It's just sort of my own dull phantom pain to live with. Bummer. I love that. It is boring to be a brief parent also, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it gets boring. You get sick of your own story, which I think is part of the process. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And then, uh, so face facts is one, and then, then? The second step is choose life. You know, there are times where we do not want to, but it's as old as the book of Deuteronomy. Choose life, not death. This day, meaning one moment at a time, one day at a time, just wanting to have a future, wanting to sort of even have faith in a future, wanting to breathe. I remember very often thinking, I can't get through another second of this pain in the hospital after surgery and infections and all of that, and yet another second came. And I would think again, I don't want to get through another second of this pain, and another second came. I kept the option open for life and later learned to choose life actively, and that's a very important part of recovery, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And and then your third step, reach out? The third step is so much what you all and Compassionate Friends are about, you know, peer support. Reach out. You have to let the even though we're, like, traumatized by the pain and, like, snails we want to withdraw into our shell, it's all normal and natural, but dangerous. Isolation will kill you. No one survives alone. No one succeeds alone. And we have to let the people in our lives into our lives and actually take responsibility to reach out to others. It takes a village to get over this awful stuff. Now, Jerry, this is really interesting because Heidi was telling me about an email. that uh, We were talking about an email that we received today. Heidi, do you want to read that? Because the reason this is interesting is because you're a guy. And we keep hearing that guys, that guys don't need to do this as much as women do. Anyway, right. Heidi, give us and, that and email. It says, it's from a woman that says, our son was killed in Iraq and my husband is very isolated. He says he doesn't want to talk with anyone. What can I do? So, yeah. Jerry, do you feel like men need the support as much as women of others? Absolutely. I think actually okay. more so. Women actually are more naturally resilient, communal, and reaching out socially. Men tend toward, you know, that isolation when we're sort of wounded and hurt or we've lost in battle or lost in life. And so, um, again, the isolation is a killer. You have to reach out, even though all of of course you don't want to. That's the face facts piece. I hate this. I don't want to. And I actually hate everyone else who's actually going through it. But at some level, to reach out. I like that. You hate everybody else who's going through it. Yeah, because we have people, and it seems like it's particularly men, who come to meetings and they're like, and my husband did, said, I don't want to be where these people are. 
right. so par- the parallel play of guys would be like, no, reach out. Don't be so um, formulaic about this. It might not be support group. It might be like, no, I had to go to the gym. I, I jog with this one guy. I play golf. It just means isolation is a disaster. You have to create a social support place that might be like, no, I have a movie buddy. I don't even, I have a, like a basketball buddy. It doesn't matter just not to isolate um, with family and friends. You have to get out of the house. You don't necessarily have to talk about the loss. You just have to connect with somebody else. And over time, there will create safe spaces. I myself am not a big group joiner, but um, I'm a talker. I'm an Irish Catholic boy from Boston. I need to, like, have it, have it out and vent it. So, yeah, and the plenty of people who got an earful from me, I don't know if I would be so suited to the group work, but I fundamentally understood peers and friendship that helped get me through um, and guys just do process it differently, I believe, but the needs are the same. How do you think they process it? Um, physically is a piece. I mean, I've seen these guys come back at Walter Reed Hospital, for example, and it's maybe we go with the easy part first, attack the weights, attack the gym, you know, attack ourselves. It's a very, um, you channel anger, hopefully, in sort of constructive ways that could be athletic and physical. That's great, and do that with others. That's also part of the fourth step, which is get moving, and movement and physicality actually matter to our health. Um, and then I think on the processing, I talk to people, yeah, you, you, I think it's not so different than women. You find yourself crying in a bathroom stall at work, and you don't want anyone to see you, and you're wondering, why did the grief just poke out right now? Nothing triggered it. And then you wipe your, you splash water in your face and, and move back in. But you find spaces to tell people that later. It can be your spouse. But so the isolation and keeping a communication line open and then more than one line is essential. And, and professional help helps as well, depending if it's available. Well, I'm, Terry, to I love, I'm sorry, with the get moving, I love how you say do your survivor sit-ups. Yeah, there's something that, you know, you know if the suffering has come your way, damn it, it's yours. Um, no one can take it away from you. No one can do it for you. You rehab thyself, and so I say the survivor sit-ups, both sort of, not to be glib about it, but you have to get back in shape physically and emotionally for life to, to sort of be able to handle this, and sometimes that's one foot in front of the other outside the door, and it takes enormous effort, but, um, you know, that both reach out and get moving, they're very twinned in terms of um being action-oriented, just doing one small thing this day. I think, Gloria, at the beginning of the show, even for Father's Day, it might be, yeah, a flower, light a candle, a phone, reaching for the phone. The very small things can be very significant actions. Yeah, and I think it's important for our um, audience out there to hear if, if you've got a son or a spouse or a guy who's doing sit-ups, they may be doing their grief work. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, we've got to recognize that um, sitting around talking about it is not everybody's deal. And I think what's interesting in the five steps is, but it's, you know, my mother talked about it as well when she lost a father at age 13 and no one talked about it and she was supposed to suck it up and get moving. So she got back into school with her and didn't really deal with it until she was 40. So one of our coping mechanisms is, you know, whether around funeral time or others is to get moving sometimes a little too fast because it's a survival skill. If I'm doing survivor sit-ups obsessively, it's because I sometimes also don't want to feel and go back to facing facts. But you can create space. Eventually, those facts are going to keep poking themselves at you. And, you you know, if you do any one of these steps or portions of it, things can be healthier. Um, but we aren't supposed to substitute long-term. If you're doing survivor sit-ups until you're 60 and never looked at what happened to you at 16, 
um, you've arrested your emotional development back at 16. I, I love this idea of the safe space because you can see uh, somebody going back to work, male and female, full-time, not creating any space at all, and then going home and dealing with the family and not finding any space to any safe space at all for themselves in this experience. Yeah. And yet, as you guys have talked about and know, like grief will find its way, whether you like it or not. It is a river that flows and seeps and faces us again because loss is part of life. I just hate to say it, and we fight it, and I don't know why, because it's like taxes. Everyone knows this is due, and life scars us and hurts us. And so the question is, the sooner we we sort of understand that it will have a life, an organic way, and everyone is both very different and very the same in this process. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about you. Now, you did have some time in the hospital, some downtime and rehab and all that. People who have a loss, a death, don't have any a lot, any rehab time, a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing that you might say that the two guys who carried me out of the minefield had all their limbs, had a tougher time emotionally and socially dealing with my loss than I did because, like myself, like the guys coming back in Walter Reed Hospital missing limbs, you have. I had six months in the hospital, rehab focused on myself, like facing the facts, staring at my limb every day of what the cost of this was, and I think netted more health faster because I was forced to be in sort of a form of rehab that I had no choice in. When you have this choice and the doors, your ambulance leaves and the doors shut, and it's quiet, and people stop visiting, that's the, the, the shadow of loss. And people look at me and say, oh, Jerry, poor chap lost a limb. Or, or, you know, I'm like, I know you're losing the limb is not the big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the loss. And, in fact, I was so fortunate with all the social support and actually the physicality of my rehab to give me focus that I do have a, even extra compassion of how hard it is without those trappings when you're dealing with the loss of a loved one, a child, etc. You know, Heidi and I talk about the fact that kids, teens in our teen book, that kids have to go back to school. You know, I mean, adults can take some time off. Kids have to go back mm-hmm. and and start school right away. They don't have a lot of rehab, do they, Heidi? Right, exactly. They have to keep going, yeah. And I think you'd have to give yourself credit, too, like, so did you. I mean, there are still yeah, choices involved. And when you lose it, you know, a spouse, for example, you end up, you know, I want a couple stories in the book about people who become, you know, early widows and that for the sake of their children, they got up after the phone call, returned to the stove, stirred the dinner in the stew, served their children while thinking, how on earth am I going to tell these young children that their father is dead? Mm-hmm. Um, right. But like, the like chore and the laundry ended up saving this woman's life. Yeah, it gave them some meaning and purpose. And like you said, sometimes after the crisis, the loss has happened for a while, and people stop coming by and you stop getting support, it gets really hard because you feel really alone mm-hmm. at that point. Well, before we go to break, uh, I want to run over these uh I want to make sure we hit the five points. So let's talk about the last one, give back. And we'll yeah. talk about that more after break, too, because I want to talk about what you're doing now. Because give back is, I would say, the, the special ingredient of this recipe for resilience. It really is where we found a differentiation for thousands of survivors around the world who have been victimized by the most outrageous things, from genocide to rape to torture to limb loss. Um, and refugee status. So giving back was really when people learned to 
give in small and big ways, finding meaning and then bringing sort of action to that meaning to help others in their community, they were the ones who didn't just survive, but they somehow grew stronger and learned to thrive, like in the fullest sense, not in a glib self-help sense, but in a sense of actually having a fuller, stronger being after and a happy, the and a happy being. Yeah, I think. the joy, the, like the a joy. secret well of energy and joy. Again, with the deepest sort of respect for those words, not being glib about it. Yeah. Well, I want to run over uh, the five points before we go to break again. And and Jerry's got him in steps, but you're really in and out of them, aren't you, Jerry? It's not one, two, three, really. Yeah, it's not linear. It's three steps forward, two steps back, cyclical, up and down, and thrown back. But in fact. All of them, I think most survivors of different types will recognize the value of pieces and beachheads for each and every one of them. So just really briefly, they are face facts, choose life, reach out, get moving, and give back. And those wonderful points are in Jerry's new book, I Will Not Be Broken, Five Steps to Overcoming Life Crisis. And Heidi and I would both thoroughly recommend that you get this book. It's very inspiring. I know that you, uh, Jerry, you know, is a survivor of landmines, uh, was very impassioned, started the Landmine Survivor Group, and has really done a lot in the world about landmines, and now is moving on to uh, deal with more survivors, maybe with veterans. Uh, can you tell us what you're doing now? Right. For about 10 years, as you say, we specialized in limb loss, amputees, and mine victims around the world, building up this network and setting up peer support networks, much like a group like Compassionate Friends would do for um, the bereaved, we were doing for people who had lost limbs and suffered from you know, the presence of landmines as part of this movement. As we started to realize that, in fact, you can't play favorites with, you know, what's different? You know, someone lost a wife, someone lost a leg, someone lost their, you know, was attacked and violated sexually, that war communities really experience polytrauma and that you had to actually work with all of the surviving groups, whether it be women, children, disabled veterans, refugees, and war victims like landmine victims, um, this other category. And we had learned a lot, as you've sort of heard, on you know resilience and what it takes to overcome and peer support methodologies. So we tried this and experimented and sort of have worked with it in all different cultures and languages around the world and feel now that you know we have something to give back, something to teach. Different groups don't just make it sort of the amputee special sauce or secret recipe. Let's sort of share it through the book so others can benefit from the philosophy of overcoming, but also with others. And that would be our way as survivors of giving back to other types of groups. And so that's what we've done this year is launch Survivor Corps as a much broader network of people helping each other overcome the effects of war and violence. Now, what if uh, some of our audience have moved along in their loss and they're ready to get to your last step, giving back? Uh, could they do something with you, or is there some way that they can connect or donate or whatever? Yeah, you um, online, this idea of, um, you know, authentically that those who learn to give again um, in, small, in volunteer ways and also financially or others just helping. In our case, you know, there might be a story of a guy and we helped in, you know, Bosnia, for example, and we helped him with a micro business to raise vegetables. And then we make sure that everyone that we've helped, they don't pay us back or feel indebted to charity. They pay it forward in the community. So this guy, Ramez, I'm thinking of, who was a landmine survivor and had been depressed later, raised vegetables, donated tomatoes to the local orphanage, and it was like the biggest day of his life, a turning point of joy when he said, 
hey, I'm no longer just the beneficiary. I'm the benefactor here. And to know that like, he had come out of his darkest space and was actually helping others, that's the ethic. So one can do that sort of online, just personally by living the five steps in a sense, but sort of giving back as a practice to others in need to where you once were, but also online to join the Survivor Corps movement of survivors helping survivors around the world. And you look for those who are maybe a little less fortunate than you, and I know a lot of genocide widows and war victims around the world in the most ghastly circumstances that need our help, and it does feel awfully good to be able to do something. So people would go to your website and read that and connect up with you, and I'm right. sure that you have a place for, where they can get in touch with you. Well, before we end the show, um, do you have any, any special thoughts? How do you, do you have any more questions you want to ask Jerry about or comments? I know you've been very moved by his story and, and by his book. I have. I just would, again, say to get this book. It is very inspirational, and I think it can help all of us heal. Anyone who's had a loss, it would, it would be very helpful, too. And, Jerry, um, I just wanted to say for those, uh, what do we need to get up and get going if we're like in that first month or two? Have you got any thoughts for really early breathers? Breathe. I like that. Just breathe. Take a moment before you get up, and not, you know, even before the maybe it, it shouldn't have gone without saying that the breathe some survivor oxygen that just says, "Okay, a new day." And so there are going to be plenty of facts to face and emotions to wrestle with. And there are some choices here, but the choosing of life again and again, day by day, moment by moment, because it will get better and you will grow stronger. That's what I've seen around the world, that those most scarred by what's wrong with the world and the pain in the world ultimately become some of the strongest agents to make things better in the world. And the irony of all of this is that only if you've been scarred and lost something that you discover, again, it's really early and hard to say or believe in the first months and years very often, but you find yourself in your missing piece and can emerge stronger. So allow for hope. Even if you aren't feeling hope, breathe and allow for hope. That's great. Well, Jerry, yeah, you had something also that you were going to uh, give us. Uh, the Is it the motto? Or the Survivor what? Pledge. The Survivor Pledge. Yeah, I think of it as just for each of us, but also working with a lot of these veterans coming home. You know, the, very briefly, it just sort of is stated as, I will not be a victim. And by that, I mean not living in or getting stuck in a victim mentality or the past. I will not be a victim. The next is, I will rise above. Um, I will rise above this injury, this pain, this loss. I won't become it. I will rise above. I will give back. I can, I will contribute again, even now. And even in sharing our stories and being open. And last, I will change the world. By changing your world in healthy ways, the ripple effect for your family, for the community, and over time is in fact the butterfly effect of changing others. We've been able to see this again and again. Start with yourself. As, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said to me, said, Jerry, we have to demine and remove the landmines from our own hearts before we can successfully demine the minefields of the world. So I do think the change and the strength comes from within each and every one of us. So um, 
that's what survivorship is about and what we all are, are sort of bound together in on this planet. Thank you, Jerry. That's so wonderful, and, and I love that ending message of that we're bound together on this planet. And, again, as our message always is, others have been there before you and made it, and we know you can too. You need Amen. not walk alone. It's time to close our show, and I want to thank you so much, Jerry, for being on the show. It's just been a delight. Gloria and Heidi, it's really a pleasure, and you're a family of inspirers and the ripple effects of your your communication and your reaching out. I don't think you can underestimate or overestimate that this is a powerful movement of connecting, and it's much needed. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.